News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The human body is so fascinating. We continue to evolve. I was reading this great story the other day about how human height has changed over the last 100 years. Uh, In some areas like Central, Southern Europe and East Asia, people have grown taller. And while in others, they have stayed the same. Just they use the example of Americans, for instance. 100 years ago, American men were the third tallest in the world. They were five feet, seven inches tall. Now, hundred years later, they are 37th and they're five feet, 10 inches tall, but they have been surpassed. And that was just one example of the way we continue to evolve. And then another one in the news in the last 24 hours, our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Dr. Tegan Lucas from Flinders University in Southern Australia. She is an adjunct lecturer in the Department of Archaeology who specializes in human evolution, human anatomy and forensic anthropology and have a listen to what they found out. So we're talking about evolutionary change of the median artery, but first and foremost, what is the median artery? So the median artery is an artery that supplies the forearm and the hand with blood. And it's an artery that we have during embryonic development. So during embryonic development, it is our main artery uh, supplying the forearm and the hand. And then as we get a little bit older, still still in the womb, we grow two other arteries called the radial and the ulnar arteries. And then what happens is as these two arteries grow and supply the forearm and the, and the hand, the median artery actually regresses, meaning it disappears. But what, what's happening now is that more and more people are actually born with the median artery and retain it throughout adult life. You know, a dumb question, but I'm a radial person, so forgive me. If I look at my wrist, I can see the veins in my wrist and in my forearm. Could I see by looking at my wrist if I am one of these people who have a median artery still intact? Unfortunately not. See, it's quite a big artery and it goes through the carpal tunnel, meaning it's quite deep. So you usually can't see it on the surface of the skin. Okay, good to know. However, what we do know is that more and more people over time are retaining this median artery, correct? Yes, yes. So uh, around the 18th century, the prevalence was between 5 and 10%. And then today, we conducted a study on Australian cadavers and we found that the prevalence was about 30%. And then what we did was we gathered all the data from around the world and every case that had ever been presented And we looked at it and we noticed that its prevalence is increasing through time. And what we actually predict is that if it keeps increasing at this rate, by the year 2100, 100% of individuals will have the median artery. That is fascinating. Do researchers have any indication as to why? You know, typically when I think of an evolutionary change, it's something that would perhaps give us an advantage. So is there an advantage that having the median artery provides for an individual? So one of the things about human evolution is that, as you said, is an advantage. But one of the things that most people don't know is that it can also happen for things that simply aren't a disadvantage. So 
the artery usually causes no disadvantage. In a very, very small percentage, it can cause pain and it can cause carpal tunnel. But the main point is that it is an anatomical variation. So it's just a variation from what is considered normal. And these anatomical variations are happening at an increased rate because of natural selection. Natural selection is currently relaxed in our um, society because the human race has actually mastered its own environment. So these people that have a variation from normal are no longer weeded out. They, they can live their life, they can reproduce and pass on these variations to other people. And therefore, we're seeing more and more anatomical variations within humans because they cause no disadvantage. A good example is uh, obesity. So, you know, in the olden days, obesity would have been very dangerous because, you know, it would have taken a lot of calories to feed someone who was overweight to satiate them and to keep them going. And so they usually wouldn't have survived. But these days, I mean, obese people at that end of the spectrum and people with, with anorexia on the other end of the spectrum, the rates are increasing. So that's because they are still able to live within our current state and and natural selection isn't weeding them out. That is so interesting. Do you have another example? You know, I'm thinking of perhaps eye color, something like that. Yeah, so um, there are some uh, variations in eye color. We're seeing, I, I had a friend through uh, primary school and she had one quarter of her eye, which was a different color than the other three quarters. And so, yeah, we're just seeing a lot more variations in, in pretty much anything. So uh, there are people born now with extra arteries, extra nerves, uh, variations within their bones. So uh, some people are born with extra joints within the bones of the feet. Some people are born with an extra bone in the back of the knee called a fabella. And some people are born with a sacrum, so that tailbone we have that hasn't fully closed, which allows our nerves to not pass through the sacral canal and it just leaves it open. And would those all, again, be examples of something that does not cause us harm and thus we're just seeing them more and more? Exactly. You know, I got to say, your field of research, it is really, really interesting. What is it about this, this field that you enjoy so much? I just love variations from from normal i love seeing how much variation exists within humans and anyone could observe this if you just take a look around the room you'll notice blonde hair black hair brown hair red hair you'll notice different nose shapes ear shapes some people have attached earlobes some people have detached earlobes there's a thousand different combinations of variations that we all have and I just love seeing the fact that we are not all the same. But I also love seeing general trends in things. And it's very exciting to me to know that humans are still evolving, that we haven't reached our peak and, and we're done like a lot of people think that we are, that evolution is still taking place. And it's exciting to think it's still happening. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, let's say anatomically speaking, when we look at the physical aspects of the body, what has evolved the most in more modern history, say, over the past 500 years? 
Oh, well, 500 years ago, well, you have to remember that humans have been around for about 7 million years. Well, hominins have been around for 7 million years and we've been evolving onto our own evolutionary past uh, for about 7 million years. So some of the major trends that have happened is an increase in brain size, an increase in height, um, decrease in brow ridge, decrease in tooth size. But one of the things that I find interesting that has happened over the past 500 years is our faces are getting so flat because we no longer need to rip and shred our food because we process our food, we've created fire, we cook our food, that our faces can no longer accommodate our wisdom teeth, our third molars. There's there's often not enough space for them, which is why so many people have issues with their wisdom teeth. So what's happening now is there are many people who are just simply born without their wisdom teeth growing and they never actually erupt their wisdom teeth. Well, Tegan, I could just sit here and pick your brain all morning, so (laughs) I'll let you go. But thank you so much. It was really great talking to you about this area of your research. Really fascinating stuff. Oh, good. I'm hope you, I hope you like it. Sure did. Boy, she was fascinating, wasn't she? That is Dr. Tegan Lucas from Flinders University in South Australia talking about human revo- evolution and how it continues. This is Mornings with Simi. Ah, great song. Let's say good morning to Nikki Reitmeyer. Now I have so many questions about her weekend. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi, and a belated happy Thanksgiving. Yes, to you as well. Now, I know that you had Thanksgiving dinner at your parents on the weekend, Mm -hmm. and I am just dying of curiosity to know how the salad went over that you brought for them. And just a little background, we were talking about unusual Thanksgiving dishes. Our producer, Greg, decided to make ambrosia, his ambrosia salad from how he grew up. And um, let's just say it was a very unique culinary delight that you were going to take over to your dad. How did that go? Uh, First of all, did I take a salad over there or did I take over a mix of lime, jello, marshmallows (laughs) and nuts in a Tupperware container. Don't forget about the cream cheese. It's also there's also the, cream cheese in there. Sorry, and the cream cheese because <laughs> I, I definitely took that over to my parents' house because after no one outside of our producer Greg ate it at uh, at your place, we uh, we thought maybe my dad would eat it because well you know what dads are like they'll eat anything. Sure. And you know what? He loved it. What? He said he he took a big bite of it and he said oh you know geez he said uh you know Elena this, this tastes just like your mother used to make it and, and he took another bite after that and he said no this is really great and then he said it, it tastes like Greg put a lot of work into this <laughs> for is that code for something though is that code for <laughs> this is a very unusual group of ingredients I mean it had marshmallows on top too right like this it's, the only yeah. scoop that came out of it was Greg's scoop that he ate and he said that he had to go to a couple of different stores to find lime jello to even make this salad which made me think there were quite a few people making some kind of ambrosia salad for Thanksgiving I think there was probably a lot of ambrosia salad conversations that happened at Thanksgiving this year the main one is always is this a dessert or is this a dish that's served with the rest of the main courses because I mean, with the marshmallows and the lime jello, it's something that seems like it would be a dessert, but then you're supposed to eat it as a... I don't know. It's honestly, I couldn't... I feel bad. I apologize to Greg. I just couldn't bring myself to eat it because it just... It's just too weird looking. I know that it's a common dish, but it's just 
too weird. Well, you know what? It's also a very interesting sociological experiment, right? Because if you grow up with it, if you've always had it, if you've always seen it on the table, you think, well, what's wrong with this? Everybody eats this. This is fine. But if you've never seen it, never had it, which is my experience, I think the first time I even saw it on a table, I was in my late 20s, that I thought, how does this belong here? But for others, it has been, you know, perfectly normal for them to have it. Like, it sounds like your dad has always seen it. Well, even cranberry sauce in a can looks weird when it comes out on the plate. I'm sure that we have other uh, listeners out there who can think back to their childhood dishes that ended up on the table that were weird but have now become Thanksgiving traditions, right? I think so. I have a recipe box that my mother collected. I think a gas station in the 70s was giving away recipe cards, so she collected the whole set. Yeah. It is such a great historical artifact, though, Nikki, because there are so many (laughs) jellied salads in there, like the ham jellied salad, like in the ring. Uh, Like There's just so many of them. So I think a lot of people... Yes. A lot of people have that experience. If they've got an unusual family Thanksgiving dish, we would love to hear about it. Call our buzz line 604-331-2899 or email me Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the federal government is apparently trying to keep a lid on the details of a raid that happened conducted by the RCMP in the city of Montreal two years ago. The company subject to that search has connections to China. And as you might expect, Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper has been on the trail of this and joins us to talk about what we know at this point. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. Why do we think that this particular raid was so important? Well, according to the U.S. government, uh, a McGill professor named Yixiang, she was part of a international conspiracy. In, uh, in very brief and boiled down details, what the U.S. government alleges is that as a professor, Mr. Xi set up a high-tech company in Montreal, and with his brother, who another uh, professor located in the United States, they were uh, routing money from the British Virgin Islands and Hong Kong bank accounts through a, a number of different entities down to the United States in a, in a, using subterfuge really to, to buy and to acquire high technology circuitry that was then shipped back up to Canada and over to a factory in China in, in order to uh, apply to technologies such as missile guidance systems and uh, cellular uh, communications. That's according to the U.S. government. Uh, Mr. Xi's brother in the United States has been convicted on 18 charges, and the uh, the United States is seeking the extradition of uh, the former McGill professor. And that's really where uh, this complication uh, over this evidence seized, allegedly, from the professor's Montreal um, business comes in. The Canadian government wants to block release of details or evidence uh, with with the, the argument that this would damage Canada's national security and international relations. And so this is going all the way up to the federal court where there will be a battle over disclosure and evidence. Really? So you have to fight for this, even though it sounds like the United States doesn't think it's a huge issue for national security? Well, uh, the United States has really, in recent years, cracked down on uh, what Western intelligence says uh, is a, a very broad problem, and that would be researchers with connections or recruited by China's military uh, being involved in, in academic and uh, 
national security institutions uh, in the Western world and allegedly sending back technology to China that China, uh, for, for national security reasons, would be blocked in acquiring this technology on international markets. And look, the, uh, the records that we found in this McGill University case say that uh, this former professor worked with Canada's space agency, worked with Canada's military, and worked with the National Research uh, Council. So these are all extremely high-technology, sensitive, yeah. national security-related entities in Canada. All we know is that uh, this professor collaborated with them. We don't know what he collaborated on. And uh, if I had to make some supposition here, I, I would think that the, the evidence in uh, the professor's Montreal business, which Canada's government is seeking to put a lid on, as you say, it, there would be some answers in that in terms of what he worked on with Canada's government. Interesting. Well, Sam, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. Thanks, Simi. That's Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist. And of course, you can always read Sam's work online at globalnews.ca, including more on this latest story of having to go to federal court to find out what it is that the federal government's not telling us about why the RCMP raided that business in Montreal two years ago. This is Mornings with Simi. We know the federal government has been working towards transitioning people from those emergency programs that they put into place in the summertime onto different versions of support programs. Now there is a new one available for businesses that are struggling with rent payments. Now, originally, these programs were supposed to end in September, but they're making sure that in some forms... They will be continuing. This one sounds like until the middle of December or so. So let's talk about this new program. Uh, Joining us now is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Dan Kelly. Dan, thanks for being here. Good morning. So have you had a chance to to look at this, this new program? Do you think it will help? Yeah, it it really does uh, take us a huge step forward. Uh, uh, Not perfect at all, but but certainly we've got... some of the major design uh, features right. Uh, we've been calling for a program that goes directly to tenants rather than requiring you to go through your landlord. And you and I have spoken about that over the months of the past. That's right. And this, and this one does just that. It doesn't require the landlord to participate in order for the small business to get some rent support. Second, it's going to continue. Uh, they've announced that the subsidy will be up to 65% for the rest of this year. But the subsidy itself is expected to continue until June of next year, giving businesses at least some assurance that if their sales don't materialize, especially with the critical holiday season coming up, that they're going to have some support. Uh, The third big feature is that businesses of all degrees of revenue loss will be able to access this. The previous program, uh, as you know, you had to have a 70% reduction in your sales to get any support at all. And this new one provides targeted support, like the wage subsidy, Really, for any degree of business loss, you get a, a you know obviously a much smaller subsidy, but you get you do get some help if you've had a twenty percent or fifty percent loss, whereas the other approach was all or nothing. So this sounds much broader then, right? We'll be able to help more businesses. And do you think it was possible because it sounds like not a lot of people used the previous program because it was so cumbersome? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the uh, previous program was a complete failure. Uh, Yes, some businesses did get help and significant help. They got a 75% reduction in their rent for a few months. But, but, you know, what was so unfair is that your landlord actually had to participate. So even if you were one of these businesses, unfortunate enough to have a 70% revenue reduction, 
if your landlord chose not to participate, you got nothing. And 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 we're we're right now we're still asking ministers Freeland and and small business minister Ng to consider going retroactive to provide that support for those that missed out between May and September. Those bills haven't gone away. In fact, now landlords, of course, are expecting their 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 rent, and businesses are saying, "Well, wait a minute. From those months I was closed, maybe now my sales are high enough yeah. that I can pay my current bills." What am I going to do about the back rent that I've had for months and months and months? And that's that's one of the things this program does not fix, unfortunately. And now, Dan, do you think part of the problem then was that maybe there was a feeling or a hoping that, that in, landlords would be more helpful? And in some cases, it doesn't sound like they were. Yeah, I think the government was counting on more landlords to participate, certainly. Uh, but it but it didn't address those other issues. Um, and, and quite frankly, look, landlords have bills to pay as well. And many of them said, especially if they've had a whole bunch of customers that were, were affected, a whole bunch of tenants that were affected, you know, could they afford to take a 25% cut in their rent, which was part of the design criteria, quite apart from just the administrative uh, paperwork of going through the loan process of the old program, they also had to take a 25% cut in the rent. In the rent. And that, for some landlords, we were Push them into having the business become essentially uh, defunct and and not being able to to pay its bills. Right. So look, we get that there's a there's a cycle here, uh, but the rent support program will help. They've also announced changes to the uh, the business loan program, the SIBA program, as well as the wage subsidy. And so all three elements that the government announced on Friday were were actually pretty good. Right. Okay. So this sounds like then they this time they took some time because they were all put in pretty quickly to begin with. They, they sure were, and, and look, we don't criticize government for not <clears throat> for not having everything perfect. The moment the moment that these programs were needed, uh, nobody was predicting the pandemic back in March. But for goodness sakes, we are now seven months into this, and now more businesses are starting to close again yeah. as a result of uh, further rounds of government shutdowns. There were some in British Columbia. There's certainly been some more recently in British in Ontario and Quebec. And and one of the things that we do appreciate about the, the new rent support program is that if your business is required to close because of the pandemic, there will be an extra top-up available to you of support, another 25% maximum right. on top of the subsidy, raising it to a potential max of 90% of the rent. Again, a positive decision. Okay, so then you've got the wage subsidy program continuing until June. You've got this new rent subsidy version of that program continuing now until well into next year. What does this mean then, do you think, for the economy, Dan, in terms of keeping businesses open? I think it will help some make it across the COVID finish line. It's certainly not the panacea. There are huge gaps still in many of the programs, the SIBA loan program, for example, if you are essentially self-employed, you're struggling and you're not able to access it. If you have a business without a business bank account, the government's promised they're going to fix that problem. They still haven't. So there's still lots of gaps. But I do believe this will help uh, and is especially needed given that we have, uh, you know, not just business shutdowns, but also consumers now with the second wave starting, yeah. consumers staying at home again. And, you know, look, this is Amazon Prime Day. Uh, and... And as customers now think about doing their holiday shopping online in increasing numbers, what is that going to mean for those small retailers that, that for whom this is a make-it-or-break-it season? They may have 50% of their sales in the two months leading up to Christmas. If we miss out on that, those retailers are toast. Yeah. All right, Dan, thank you very much for talking to us this morning. Anytime at all. 
Dan Kelly, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, talking about these new government programs. And as you heard him say, improvements on the programs that they had instituted earlier this year. The emergency rent subsidy continues and now the tenants directly can apply for that as opposed to having and hoping that their landlord will do it for them. And then the wage subsidy program continuing until June of next year. And then you may wonder, why is there so much Christmas stuff in the stores right now? I think it's exactly as Dan just pointed out there, is that retailers are really hoping that that Christmas shopping season will help them economically this year. They need that boost and hoping that enticing people to do a little bit more shopping uh, will help them make it across, as Dan says, the COVID finish line. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about the latest polling now, just out this morning, within the last hour, actually, about where we sit with the parties in this BC election campaign. So joining us now is Kyle Braid, the Senior Vice President of Ipsos. They uh, they did the poll this morning that was commissioned by Global News. So good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so we've been checking in with you regularly throughout this campaign. Tell me about these latest numbers. Well, you could probably replay the interview we did two weeks ago because they look exactly like that. Uh, the NDP has an 18-point lead over the uh, the Liberals, 52 to 34 among decided voters. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, that was the same 18-point lead. The only difference is the NDP's gone up one, the Libs have gone up one, the Greens have gone down one from 12 to 11, and all those other minor parties have gone down from four to three. Uh, we even haven't seen changes in terms of, you know, who would make the best premier. It's still Horgan by uh, a margin of 45 to 16 over Andrew Wilkinson. That's essentially unchanged. And the NDP continues to dominate all the issues that matter to British Columbians, especially on COVID, where they uh, are seen as the best party by a 35-point margin to deal with that over the Liberals. And COVID actually has increased as uh, the most important issue since the start of the campaign. So all good numbers for uh, for the NDP and no real signs of life yet for the right. uh, other parties. So when you look at those, then, is there any movement for the other parties at all? None at all, really. Wow. The, the, the race has tightened up a little bit in the interior north, but that could just be margin of error stuff. You know, I mean, if there's any silver lining here, I guess it's one is that this is a pre-debate poll and not a post-debate poll, because if this was a post-debate poll, it would all be over. So there's still an opportunity for the other leaders to do something. Um, you know, we still have a pretty high level of undecided 27 percent of, yeah. of voters. So that's still there. Uh, we tested a number of the promises that have been made so far in the campaign. I know there's still more to come, but uh, the one that stands out the most, that does the best, not by a huge margin, but does the best, is the Liberal promise to uh, end I- ICBC's monopoly. So that's an opportunity that you know the Liberals have perhaps to promote a bit, bit more. Uh, undecided voters, in particular, seem to seem to like that one. It's not enough to you know close an 18-point gap, but yeah, uh, you got to close. You got to close a little bit to to close a lot. Let's talk about some of the age breakdowns here too, because I found it interesting that the voters aged fifty five and older are even more kind of weighted towards the NDP. Well, normally, what we see, as as I'm sure you're aware, is you know the older you get, the more conservative or liberal you get. Right. So the NDP typically does well with younger voters. This time around, uh, in fact, the NDP is ahead by 17 points with those 55-plus. 
They're ahead by 21 points, the NDP, among those 35 to 54. And they're ahead by, just a little math here, 17 points among the young people. So they're ahead with everybody in terms of age. And we typically do not see that at all in B.C. elections. And, you know, sometimes people say the young people aren't going to show up to vote. Well, if they don't show up to vote this time, it doesn't really make that much of a difference because they feel the same way as the old folks. Let's talk about regions then. Uh, So we'll start with Metro Vancouver. Uh, Huge lead again for the uh, NDP, 56% of decided voters to 33 for the uh, the Liberals. So uh, that means that the NDP will be picking up those uh, those seats in Metro Vancouver. Okay, and what about the interior in the north? Well, the interior of the north, uh, it's tight. Um, This is an area where, of course, you know, the Liberals won almost all the seats last time. Right now it's a statistical tie, 44 for the NDP, 42 for the B.C. Liberals. So, you know, that's an area where the Liberals are are competitive, and they have improved a little bit there since since last time. And, you know, there may be an opportunity for them to hold on to a lot of the seats there. But that's not really all that much of a challenge, because as you're aware, you know, often they win seats there with, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent of the vote. Right, exactly. Okay, and I know the Green Party is still doing well on Vancouver Island, I take it? They're doing okay. They're at 17 percent compared to 20 percent in our first poll. And I don't know the numbers right off the top of my head, but I know they were well into the 20s in the last election. So they overall are 11 compared to 17 in the last election. So they're, at this point, their ability to hang on to any of those seats that they've got on the island, three of them, is in question. So they need to improve. And and tonight at the debate, they need to... uh, I think they need to point out to you know the folks that voted for them before a, a clear reason for them right. to uh, to get that vote again. And I know that you talked about which pledges seem to be resonating with people there. Uh, how did the BC Liberal pledge to eliminate the PST for a year go over? It's gone over okay, but clearly it hasn't moved the vote. Yeah. The, the problem for the Liberals is... You know, it's it's no better than the NDP pledge to freeze rents. It's no better than the NDP pledge to, uh, you know, provide a thousand dollar payment to uh, to families. So it's doing fine. It gets a, a a neat little thumbs up from a lot of people, but it's no better than any other promises. And it needs to be a killer promise in order to close this gap. Right, because I guess now it just seems like people are not accustomed to, but they have come to expect that the governments are going to do extraordinary things to help us get through this pandemic. Yes, and uh, they've certainly seen that. And if, if this promise really did resonate and excited people, we would have seen this 18-point gap close, and right. we have not. Okay, so then that, I guess this all kind of illustrates, Kyle, how important that debate is tonight. It's, well, I feel like I'm talking to The Bachelor and, you know, the most uh, important one or the most exciting one <laughs> Are ever. Are you but a Bachelor is, fan, Kyle? Uh, Come uh, on. Well, yes, I, I, I've watched it with, uh, with my wife. Um, but yes, this is the most important debate ever, certainly for Andrew Wilkinson. Uh, it's, his, it's his last chance to connect with voters. It's his last chance to accomplish something and, and take something out of this lead. So um, this is it. There's not going to be a chance after this because this is an election where people are focused on heavily on one issue, which is COVID. It's yeah. an issue that the NDP owns, um, and you know people aren't paying as much attention to a campaign as they normally would, uh, and it's hard for the parties to actually get out there and 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 connect with voters. So this is this is it.
All right, Kyle, thank you very much. I look forward to your post-debate polling as well. All right, thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the other day on the show, we were talking about rental agreements that don't allow people to rent a home with a pet. Now, the SBCA said that's actually the number one reason why people give up their pets. So it kind of got us thinking. Now, it would mean that the province would have to change that. That is a province-wide law that allows landlords to put that rule into place. But what are the party positions when it comes to pet ownership and animal rights? So we are joined now by animal law lawyer Victoria Schroff for more on this. Victoria, thank you for being here. Pleasure. I have a feeling that this hasn't really come up all that often, right? Thinking about what would be best for your pets when you vote. Well, yeah, it's also not just uh, pets. It's also about wild animals. And what I've asked in um, articles that I've written, um, I wrote an article for the Georgia Strait, and then I was interviewed for the Vancouver Sun, was to um, have the parties explain what their platforms might be in relation to both wild and um, domestic animals. Because COVID-19 has definitely shown us very clearly that human and animal health and concerns and safety are firmly linked up. So I think it's actually more of an issue than people realize at first glance. Okay, so then is it hard to ever find anything in a party platform about animals? Um, It can be, um, but then if you do a little bit of digging, you can find things. Um, I asked the same question when we had the federal election last year. And and I just said, you know, from the pet's point of view or the animal's point of view, how does it look? You know, how are things looking? Are, are um, parties even considering it, putting it on their platform and saying, you know, well, we need to talk about things. A moment ago, you were talking about pets in rental housing and in stratas and things like that. And, and that's definitely something that hits home for a lot of people. And it will be really um I think, informative for parties to say where they stand on, um, you know, um, changing the law in that regard um, to allow pets, because currently guide and service dogs are allowed to live in rental properties. But landlords um, really have the choice whether or not to accept uh, pets onto their rental properties or not at this at this stage of the law. Um, unlike some other provinces. Right. It must be challenging, though, to even get those issues kind of addressed, right, with everything else that's going on. Yes, it can. It definitely be. But I I, I just come back to this concept of of the interlinking between our lives and animal lives and um, the need for um, laws and regulations in that regard. And we're talking about climate change, and people think that, you know, at, at one point people used to think that climate change was abstract, and now we know it's it's very real and it's something that needs to be addressed as do indigenous perspectives on animals and the law as, as well. You know, these are things that aren't just, um, you know, side issues. For example, when we talk about hunting in BC, I don't think we can do that without talking about indigenous perspectives and the UNDRIP principles um, that the UN laid down. Um, so there's, there's quite, you know, when you scratch the surface, you'll see there's actually right. quite a bit yeah. So, Victoria, if somebody, you know, said, oh, OK, this is really interesting. What questions should they be asking of their candidates to determine more about this? Well, I think just starting with the basic question, where do you stand in relation to pets? Do they matter at all to your party? Um, and and if so, what in what way? For example, another one one thing that I'm very, very keen on seeing is a provincial wide ban on pet store sales of animals. Um, I think that's a huge one for um, shutting down these horrendous 
puppy and kitten mills, uh, which um, just basically overbreed and overbreed in disgusting, filthy conditions um, and sell to pet stores. And then that same pet comes home with people. The pet's really, really sick. And people don't understand. And if you have children, you understand how heartbreaking it could be and seeing your children get attached to a pet within the first five minutes and find out that this, this animal's sick because it was bred in a puppy mill. Ooh, so, yeah. So, so I would start, I start with that question because that, that's a pretty easy one. We've had a lot of municipal bans already yeah. on trails of pet stores, as you know, um, animals in pet stores. So why not extend that to make it a provincial-wide ban? And, um, you know, right. I think just pick, pick a couple issues that matter to you as in terms of animals and the law and say, you know, where do you stand right. on emergency preparedness legislation and animals? Why aren't they written in? Why don't we have to account for animals in that legislation? And, um, okay. yeah, there's so there, I mean, of course, I have a long shopping list. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a good place for people to start. Victoria, thanks for your time. Thanks very much. That is Victoria Schroff, an animal law lawyer, with some advice for you if you want to vote with your pet in mind for this election. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, lackluster apologies don't seem to be doing much to stem the tide of controversy surrounding sexist comments made by BC Liberal MLA and candidate Jane Thornthwaite about NDP candidate MLA Bowen Ma. Now, remember, Andrew Wilkinson has not addressed these comments yet. However, they're announcing their campaign platform at 9.30 this morning, so he will undoubtedly get asked about it then. And he's joining Mike Smith coming up at 11 this morning. And I'm sure he'll be asked about it then as well. Joining us now to talk about the fallout from all of this is Bowen Ma, the MLA for North Vancouver Lonsdale, who is running for re-election. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Thanks so much for having me this morning. What has the response been like in the last 48 hours or so for you? You know, I think British Columbians came out with a swift and strongly negative reaction to the video. And that was actually extremely, I don't want to say heartwarming, but it meant a lot to me. And certainly, I think it meant a lot to women and girls across the province. Because, and I think that that happened because it resonates with British Columbians. It would be difficult to find a woman who has not had any experiences with casual sexism, particularly in the workplace or other male-dominated environments. And people are so often judged not by their experience, their accomplishments or potential, but instead by the way that they look or by other people's sexualization of them. And it disrespects and holds our entire society back. Now, we had also heard that the BC Liberal candidate Jane Thornthwaite was going to reach out to you and apologize personally. Has she done that? Jane did leave a voice message on my phone. I have to admit, I don't use voice message. I'm an elder millennial, and I try to avoid checking my voice messages. But I did check it, and I do appreciate her efforts to reach out and apologize to commit to being better. But this really isn't about me, and I never needed or asked for any of the BC Liberals to apologize to me. We're all human. We make mistakes. We learn from them. We grow. But not all of us are running to be premier. And Andrew Wilkinson, BC Liberal leader, he was on that call. He was one of the nine faces on that screen laughing as the sexist joke was told. And it really isn't about this one incident or this one video or this one event. It's become a pattern of behavior that Andrew Wilkinson tacitly endorses. 
by allowing it to continue in his caucus. And that's the part that concerns me the most, because he's running to lead this entire province. And have you heard from him or anybody else who was on that call? No, I have not. Would you appreciate a phone call from the leader himself? You know, again, it's not about me. I don't need him to reach out to me and apologize to me. I think what he needs to do is explain to British Columbians why he felt it was okay for him to laugh along on that and how he expects to be able to set the tone for this entire province when it comes to respect for women when he can't even set that tone in his own political party. That is what he needs to do. It's not about me. He needs to explain to British Columbians why they should be able to trust a man who allowed sexism to continue in such a public way to prevent it from happening throughout the province when he's when he's premier. What kind of damage do you think this does in terms of a, a woman's behavior, right? Like, do we we start to second guess yourself? Do you, do you have that kind of reaction too when you hear that your interactions with someone like Ralph Sultan could be perceived that way? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the very initial feelings I had when I saw the video was an immediate... Um, immediate need to feel like I had to defend myself, you know, like, but, but Ralph is hard of hearing. Of course, I have to sit close to him. It's hard for us to have conversations when we're far apart and there's a lot of noise. I really felt as though I had to justify my behavior, which is why the response from British Columbians was, uh, was so important because British Columbians didn't need me to justify my behavior. We've gotten to the place where British Columbians saw that video and immediately recognized themselves in it, immediately recognized that this was an experience that they had and that they didn't need me to explain why. They just knew that it was wrong. And that is a level of awareness and courage that I think British Columbians maybe haven't displayed uh, in, in quite so swift a fashion before when it came to sexism. I'm very, very proud of right. this province. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Take care. That's Bowen Ma, North Vancouver Lonsdale NDP candidate, and of course very much in the news the last 72 hours.